Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. It was supposed to be the war to end all wars. At the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the guns on the battlefield fell silent to mark the signing of the armistice that ended World War I. Yet for all the hope of peace and a return to normalcy, the First World War, as it would later be called, merely marked the opening of a century dominated by global conflict. As we come upon the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, the Our Missouri podcast is launching a three-part series on Missouri and the Great War. Each episode in the series will focus on dif- different aspects of the war, ranging from soldiers and civilians on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, to how the conflict has been remembered in memory and monuments. Today, in Part 2, we are speaking with Jonathan Casey, Director of the Archives and Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from the College of William & Mary and a master's degree in museum studies from the University of Kansas. In addition to managing the museum's collection of over 100,000 items, he has also traveled to several World War I sites in the United States and Europe to give programs on the war's lasting impact. Can you start by telling us a little bit about where the National World War I Museum and Memorial is located at in Kansas City for people who may not be familiar with the facility? Okay. Uh, yes, we are in Kansas City, Missouri, in Midtown, um, across from Union Station, south of Union Station. That's the easiest way to find us. I mean, we have a 217-foot tower, uh, which is it's easy to see from a distance, but we're across from Union Station in Midtown, Kansas City, Missouri. And could you tell us a little bit about the, the history of the Liberty Memorial Tower, since it is so dominant on the skyline? What's the history of that, of that overall structure? Well, the uh, history starts uh, right at the end of World War I. The, the armistice, almost actually a couple days before, uh, there was an effort to uh, want to build a memorial uh, to those who served, and especially those who sacrificed. And uh, the business and civic leaders got together. This is in 1918, right after the armistice of November 11, 1918, and formed uh, what eventually became the Liberty Memorial Association. And that was dedicated to raising the memorial and also turned it into a museum. So it's not just a memorial, it's a museum as well. And um, a lot of money was raised in 1919, um, a little over $2 million for the memorial and museum. And there was an architectural competition uh, in the early 20s, I think in 22. And then uh, construction started like in 23. And uh, it went along and then opened in 1926, November 11th, and Armistice Day 1926. The structure opened. Uh, President Calvin Coolidge was here um, uh, to uh, present, uh, like to bring the the federal government's uh, uh, affirmation of the memorial and, and to indicate how important it was and significance of it because he would be speaking here. And uh, that's 1926. There were other ceremonies, like a uh, cornerstone ceremony in 1924. And then in 1921, 
uh, site dedication, and that's when the uh, General John Pershing, who's from McLean, Missouri, and the four other Allied commanders, the top commanders from the war, got together and were here at uh, the only place that they were together one time, uh, and uh, they were here for other reasons too, and uh, in the country. But they they dedicated the site at 21, uh, and then eventually then it opened in 26, and later on the the site was finished, the park land and everything. It's a public park. And that was finished and landscaped, and then there was a sculptural frieze was put on the front of the building, the front wall facing north, uh, in 1935. That was dedicated. So the all the original structure is, dates from that period, from 26 to 35, and has since been renovated and expanded into what uh, one would see today. Now, when was the museum officially kind of created, and what was the kind of history behind that? Well, the museum itself, what became the, the original museum, which is still in a building called the, the Exhibit Hall, the West Building, uh, that's still used as an, as an exhibition space, uh, that was done at the same time. Back in 1919, there was a vote to the people, uh, because they asked the people for their money, there was a public a public subscription drive uh, modeled after the Liberty Loan drives of the war that asked people for the money, and that's how most of it was raised. And uh, the people wanted a museum. They were given a ballot, and with several choices, and one was uh, to have a memorial with a museum, so something that people could they look at things from the war, uh, what, what you might think of as souvenirs, but um, things from the war and what the, what the actual soldiers and other servicemen and women used, and um, so that was all part of it. So there was a collections committee from the beginning, or it was called a War Trophies Committee, and, and that, their responsibility was to gather these materials, and there were a number of them from foreign governments as gifts, and uh, it was three-dimensional kind of material and two-dimensional kind of materials like maps and posters, and the, actually the collection started with uh, posters in 1920. 500 posters were purchased to start the collection. So uh, that was the museum was planned from the beginning and opened in 1926 with the tower in the East Building called Memory Hall. And the, uh, the memorial courtyard around it and the two sphinxes, statues on the south end uh, and, every, and, and so forth, that was pretty much what it was then. And then, as I said, it, uh, more was added to it uh, by 1935. And could you tell us a little bit about the facility you work in, the archives and the and the Edward Jones Research Center? Mm-hmm. Right, I'm the director of archives in the Edward Jones Research Center. Um, so I'm responsible for the archives collection and the library collection. So we have a research center, which is uh, a library, and it's open to the public uh, six days a week, Tuesday through Sunday, 10 to 4, and there's no admission. And uh, a person can just come in, uh, doesn't need an appointment, and then sign in at the attendance desk and start asking questions. And so we have a library uh, that's available to the public. We have uh, more library that's not, that would have to be uh, kind of ahead of time. We'd have to know what somebody, book somebody wants, and then we can pull those books because we're in storage. Uh, the information for the library and for a lot of the collection is in a collections database on our website, uh, the theworldwar.org. Website and it's under the Explore tab and it's an online collections database and there's a lot there to look at. 
uh, and everything is part of the collection. The library is not a circulating library. Uh, someone can't check out a book. So they'd have to, he or she would have to stay here with the books, and but we're open 10 to 4. Um, the archives is something that where people, because they donate books uh, in other library holdings, and they donate uh, all kinds of things. We have a large collection of two-dimensional, three-dimensional objects, and I'm responsible for two-dimensional objects and just responsible for what goes into the collection and what doesn't, uh, and working with potential donors and people, uh, anything to do with the collection and, and the collection's management. Uh, and then I work with uh, people who have research questions, the people who really want to do research here, let's say with two-dimensional collections like letters and diaries that contact me, and then they would be uh, uh, given the material, and, and they actually do the research in a room separate from the public research room where the library is, uh, so that we have some security for the uh, for the collection's material. Uh, so I'm over all that kind of basic operations of uh, what what we have uh, for the again two-dimensional collection and for the library and research center, um, and also to include everything, also the Ellis Gallery, which is a exhibition gallery on the level of the research center, the Edward Jones Research Center, which is on the lower level of the museum. Um, the Ellis Gallery is sort of an art gallery. It's for two-dimensional objects, and um, we have an exhibition that currently called uh, War Around Us, and uh, that's also under my uh, area of responsibility. You mentioned some of the collections that you have. Are there any kind of notable or prominent ones that you like to show people if there are people who are interested? If somebody's doing research on something, they can really see the collections. Like I'm talking about the archival collections. We do have, uh, first thing that comes to mind, what I mentioned, is the posters, which started in 1920 with 500 posters. And we have a number of them on exhibit. So in the throughout the gallery spaces, there's posters on exhibit. And uh, we have uh, like 1,200 or something uh, posters, and uh, a number of those are duplicates, but we have a lot of posters and all from all the countries, pretty much all the countries involved, or all the, pretty much all the major ones. And, uh, you know, a lot of things that that's, they're really great for research and for educational use. Uh, so we have like famous I Want You, Uncle Sam poster, and then, and then many others. Um, we have a nice collection for our Medal of Honor recipient. The Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration. This is for a U.S. Army uh, soldier uh, named John Lewis Barkley. He was from Johnson County, Missouri, uh, Warrensburg area, and then he was um, uh, was in the, serving in the Third Division, and he uh, performed some deeds that uh, his actions that. Uh, uh, made him a recipient of the Medal of Honor, and this is during about this time of the year, and actually in October 1918, during the Zarkon Offensive. And uh, so that's, he, he's our Medal of Honor. He's kind of like our Sergeant Alvin York from Tennessee, Medal of Honor recipient. And uh, so we have his collection, all the two-dimensional, all the letters, and everything to do with his, uh, while he was in the service and after the service, because he was uh, kind of a celebrity. So he's... Uh, like book contracts and movie contracts and things like that. And then a third collection uh, that I like is uh, one of a American from Oklahoma who was a Red Cross surgeon serving in Vienna, Austria, before we were in the war. So he was serving in, in 1914 and 15 uh, before we got in the war in April 17. So he was, we were neutral 
and he went over there as a member of a team for the, for the United States uh, with the Red Cross and helped out. He was a surgeon and uh, helped uh, wounded Austrian and Hungarian soldiers. And, uh, we have a uh, collection gives you a look from behind the lines of the other side. Eventually, as when we got into the war, because Austria-Hungary was uh, allied with Germany and two other countries that were then fighting. France and Britain and Russia and other countries that we became uh, that we became allied with uh, were on the best side on the other side. So uh, it's an interesting collection to have from the kind of behind the lines thing. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in the Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute about a simple man who believed he could trust other people moving to a remote part of the country claiming a considerable amount of land, but whose brief and general descriptions of land were not good enough, and a court ruled he didn't really own it. So an old man now, he brought his family to Missouri. He was widely known as a frontiersman, a settler, Indian fighter, explorer. The Spanish gave him 845 acres of land and made him a syndic, a sort of sheriff, magistrate, and probate judge. Later he had to sell most of his Missouri property to pay his Kentucky debts. He was slightly bald, his remaining hair neatly combed, with a ruddy, fair countenance, a soft, melodious voice, stood five feet ten, weighed 180 pounds, and was still active when he died at 85. Some say Daniel Boone, who was born on November 2, 1734, journeyed as far as Yellowstone. The path from St. Charles County to the family salt works in central Missouri became Highway 40. He died about a year before we became a state. Some say he's still buried here. Others claim he was taken back to Kentucky, a place to which he once said he never wanted to return. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. In terms of this year, 2018, being the 100th anniversary of the really the end of World War One, how right. far out did you all have to kind of prepare for exhibits and events, kind of building up to this year? Well, we started preparing say in 2012, thinking about exhibitions and uh, programming back that far, and we had a smaller staff then. Uh, and when I started, there was only one other person who was the senior curator. Uh, so it was real small. And then we, we had to reopen the whole museum and everything and then uh, plan on the new museum. But uh, for the centennial, really going back to 2012, the planning, and then going out through uh, through June of next year, 2019, and that's when the Paris Peace Treaty at Versailles was signed and we were one of the signatories. So we uh, the centennial is from... June of 14 to June of 19. Uh, and so all the, again, exhibitions and programming, and the exhibitions have mainly been going year to year, and there's a theme for each year, 2014, 15, 16, and so forth, uh, that, uh, for a theme for each year during the war, you know, 1914, 15, 16, and so forth. Uh, so they're tied into that theme, and that's in the exhibit hall. We have the, within the main gallery is the uh, exhibition for the overall uh look of the, the overall view of the war, the interpretation of the war and the, and the story uh, and representing everybody. That's what we try to represent as many countries as possible and, and both sides clearly and uh, with material from everybody. So that's the main one. But the ex in Exhibit Hall, we have the annual exhibition for the Centennial. And then we've been trying to tie that in also with what, what's on in Memory Hall and then the in the Ellis Gallery, and now we have a new gallery, the Wiley Gallery, that opened this February, so that allows us to bring in, uh, mainly right now, traveling exhibitions and bring them in, because that's a, a, a whole new space. And uh, 
the programming is part of uh, is part of all that. There's, they work in tandem, the exhibitions and programming. Um, and uh, uh, in terms of like the research center, research services we provide that the people really are, I think, uh, because of the centennial and that we've got a lot of attention that people are looking for uh, their relatives who served in the war. You know, they're looking back 100 years and trying to find out about uh, those people from then and you know, that, so we do a lot of business with that. We're helping people find their relatives, uh, which is good. It's really a, a personal thing. And uh, so we, anyway, that's, you know, I said it started in 2012, and now we're looking forward to after the war, after the centennial. We've got to look now from, we're looking from 2020 to 2026, and in 2026 will be the 100th anniversary of the Liberty Memorial. What was called the Liberty Memorial then, now it's the National World War One Museum and Memorial. Um, sometimes you see an ad Liberty Memorial, but it's uh, we're the National Museum and Memorial. Now, as we think of this 100th anniversary, and you mentioned people interested in finding out about more about their family members and their ancestors, how much attention have you all received, or visitors or dignitaries well, have come yeah. by? Yeah, well, the, in our, our uh, attendance has grown every year, uh, setting a record every year. You know, we have records back. Uh, uh, Ten years or so, maybe before that, the, the new museum. What, well, the new, the main gallery, what you see today, in the research center opened in December twenty, uh, in December two thousand six. So we've been over about twelve years, uh, and we've just had the attendance has grown, and and a lot of our media uh, presence has grown a lot through social media. Uh, but and we've been in uh, now. We, we do have a company that works with us to play stories you know, with all kinds of media, with social or with print media or whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, so we, we've been helped out. We really have grown so much. Uh, the attendance last year was something like 380,000. That's everyone who paid to visit the museum or see a program. So in the programming schedule has grown. Just everything across the board has grown, which has increased our profile immensely really exponentially, and because I've been here, uh, I always put it in a personal way, I've been here for 17 and a half years next month, so that's a long time in one place to see the growth of it, and like I said, I started, there was this one other person, we were off-site in, in underground storage, so uh, it's really taken off, and uh, our museum's uh, staff is about 40 people, I think, full and part-time, seasonal. Uh, and it's, but it's really taken off, and we've got a lot of national and international attention, which started to build when we opened almost 12 years ago now, back in 2006, but it really, since then, has taken off a lot. And uh, I think it's just the, the presence out there on the, on, the, you know, on the Internet and a lot of that. And people contact us every day. I mean, I'm talking to people every day about things. It's really, it's really grown, and I think it'll continue after Centennial. I don't think it'll cut back so much. I think people now are aware of us, and we have this momentum. And, you know, we're the only National World War One Museum. I mean, that's it. You know, there are collections elsewhere, but uh, we're the only ones to do World War One all the time. So for better or for worse, we do World War One all the time. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot. We get uh, attention from everywhere, you know, all over the country and uh, world. Yeah, thinking about kind of the attention that you get and everything, I remember about a year ago I went to Connecticut for some research and I came through the uh, Knights of Columbus's museum and archives in New Haven, and they were doing right. a World War One display, and they had a number of artifacts and documents from 
uh, obviously, you all. And I was curious, you know, how do these exhibits get transported to various museums and where have you displayed your artifacts at beyond your own museum? We have traveling exhibitions. Our registrar is responsible for those, Stacey Peterson, Museum Registrar. So that's one of her responsibilities is to uh, to uh, take care of loans for us loaning objects to other museums and then uh, incoming loans. Like I mentioned, uh, the Wiley Gallery, and there's an exhibition there now, uh, Fort Liberty, the Jewish American Experience of World War One, uh, and that's on loan to us. So that's her one of her responsibilities, the big responsibility. So loans going back and forth. And we just send them out. You know, people, they, I, I remember meeting some of those people from uh, the Knights of Columbus Museum, uh, and uh, there were the curators here in the archivist, and they were planning this big World War One exhibition. So they actually came to us for support. Uh, and so I forget how many objects we loaned them and everything, but, uh, uh, and I, as far as I know, the exhibition runs through this year. Uh, and, but, you know, Stacey takes care of that. She does paperwork. Uh, and uh, it's actually literally packs things and then ships them out, and you know, and uh, uh, some we just and we just got something the other day. I mean, there's there's places all over that are doing exhibitions, one kind or the other, and some big, some small, and you know, so we're helping a lot of places. I don't know how many offhand, uh, but we we are helping a lot of places, and uh, you know, that's uh, I think that's going to continue even beyond the centennial. I think it would continue indefinitely. But especially, you know, there's people still with interest in, in uh, World War I beyond the centennial. So uh, that's what Stacy takes care of all that. And, and some of these are international. We, we had uh, the opening exhibition in the Wiley Gallery uh, involved this huge painting titled Gassed by John Super Sargent, an iconic painting that is uh, in the collection of the Imperial War Museums in London. And that was part of a traveling exhibition. And so we had to work with them. and. We had to get this ship back to Europe. You know, that's there's all kinds of stuff going on with that, and uh, so it's a it's an interesting part of museum work. But without a registrar, I mean, you know, that would be almost impossible. Stacy's been here uh, six and a half years, and before her, we did do something like that a little bit, but it was really difficult. So Stacy's doing a lot of work now. If someone is interested in learning more about family history, and especially ancestors who served in World War One. what are some best practices you can recommend for them looking into this family history or finding out more about their veterans and their family? Right. Uh, well, one thing, a lot of people have uh, objects. They have collections of things, like letters. They have a uniform and all that. So it's good to know maybe because someone can look around his or her family and see what's, what's out there, see what the family knows. Uh, and... Uh, they could do some work online if they find out some information about it, what they have. They could just do online, see uh, what's, what kind of uh, information is out there about a particular unit that the uh, person who served in uh, or something. Uh, and, and they could uh, always, of course, a lot of people contact us, and we help them out. If we just get enough information, uh, we, can, uh, we can find out uh, information for them. We can get some answers. There are a lot of places to contact a lot of repositories throughout the country, so uh, we can guide them as to where to go if we don't have information. But we have really a lot of through our library, and we have uh, Ancestry and Fold Three uh, that are uh, their research, their databases that we can use because we have their uh, we have partnered with them 
so we, we can use the resources and what we know already in hard copy or what we know about online. We can help anyone uh, to some extent. You know, so uh, I think people just uh, are become more aware of what if they have a relative who's in the war of, of uh, about that person, and uh, uh, it's different generations too. Sometimes it's uh, like daughters and sons of the of the person who was in the war, and then other times it's great it's grandchildren or great grandchildren that they're looking into it. So uh, you know, that's out all the stuff, and and uh, I hear from a lot of people. Like I said, we try to help them out, and we can. Um, and so uh, uh, that's that's what we're here for. That's one reason why what we're here for, and that helps uh, educate people about World War One. And uh, you know, overall, we've got a lot of good uh, response anyway from uh, people who visited here. Everybody who comes here likes it. I've heard from a lot of people over the years. We're doing something right. Certainly. Now, as we yeah. think of kind of Veterans Day coming up here, um, what are some big things that are going to be happening on site for you all in honor of, of Veterans Day and, and the end of the war and certainly November with the 100th anniversary? Yeah. Well, we're going to have a, a lot of events going on that weekend, November 11th, Sunday, and we're going to have things leading up to it the week before. Um, and uh, it's the kind of the traditional ceremony, but uh, with other things uh, uh, expanded, just expanding the traditional ceremony and, and remembering the 100 years. I mean, this is the centennial. This is a special anniversary. So um, the thing I can say now is just really to keep looking at our website to see what's going to happen. Because some things are still in flux. Mm-hmm. So it would be looking at our website, but we're going to have, uh, there'll be bell ringing. Uh, they ring bells and have a lot of people. I mean, it's a celebratory thing. Uh, the wreath laying, kind of traditional elements. Uh, that that an audience uh, expects uh, from a ceremony at a at a museum at a, uh, and uh, there's something of this historical uh, significance. So there's going to be that, but there'll be the uh, and the speakers and the and uh, uh, other things, kind of but more of an international. Probably in this case, uh, more international. Definitely, usually it's just usually it's like local people uh, from Kansas City, Missouri. You know, who are speaking and, and all this, but this is going to be broad and to include others uh, representing other countries. Uh, and um, I, I know there's a lot going on outside of us. I mean, it's like in Washington D.C. and everything. But we're the we're one of the centers uh, for for the activities, and uh, as we should be at the National Museum Memorial. But all I can say right now is just look at the website. And and your website is. Is the or the T H E? I always have to say it both ways. So, uh, theworldwar.org. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jonathan. Sure, Sean. Sure, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. Benton's Perilous Visions is an exhibit of Thomas Hart Benton artwork from World War II that showcases the artist's interpretation of the anxiety, horror, grief, and resolve that permeated American society during the war years. This exhibit will be on display in the main gallery of the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center until spring 2019. 
Are you an educator who is interested in developing a National History Day program at your school or using Missouri's primary sources in your classroom? The State Historical Society of Missouri is participating in several educator workshops in November that will provide tips on exhibits, performances, programming, and finding effective resources within the Historical Society's vast collections. National History Day in Missouri coordinator Maggie Mahan will be in St. Louis on November 9th for a workshop at the Thomas Jefferson Library on the campus of the University of Missouri-St. Louis with senior archivist Claire Marks. National History Day workshops will also be held at Strong Library on the Missouri State University campus in Springfield on November 9th and Gentry Middle School in Columbia on November 29th. If you live in southwest Missouri, come to the Library Station Springfield-Green County Library on November 10th for an event on the Springfield-Missouri streetcar strike of 1916 and 1917. This presentation by senior archivist Aaron Smither will examine the causes of the strike, the ways protesters benefited from community support, and the kidnapping and murder that influenced the demonstration's outcome. To register and learn more about these events, visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.